You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Salakrup, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Movie Podcast. I am Steve Ferguson. And I am Douglas Ferguson. Hey Doug, how's it going? Um, well, yeah, I guess, what, what was the last one we recorded? It was the Star, Star Trek, Trek. Yeah. and so I guess I've moved since then. Yeah. As you see, a little bit of a tighter quarters, but, uh, but uh, you know, it's cozy. It's okay. We're making it work. Just to put some uh, some things in context as to when we're recording, uh, San Diego Comic Con is uh, had just finished up. Oh and, right. uh, yeah, 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 just finished. Yeah, and uh, lots of announcements uh, about all these new uh, these uh, the next phase of Marvel films. Eh? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't even see them all. I just I saw kind of a lineup of the titles, mm-hmm. the title cards, um, and I heard about uh, Natalie Portman returning. Mm-hmm. That's um, Thor herself. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, which is pretty cool because my understanding was she didn't want anything to do more with working in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm glad they were able to patch that. That's, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's Apparently, good. I heard, and I don't know how true this is, but Taika Waititi uh, convinced her himself. So, Aww. You know what it was? It was his accent. Of course it was, obviously. Hey, he's like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you wanted to come and uh, be in my movie. <laughs> She's like, I can't say no to this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that sounds way more like the uh, the guy who plays uh, Flight of Concord's manager. Oh, yeah, series. yeah. Uh, well, the, I don't remember the character's name, but I remember the actor's uh, Rice Darby. Mm. Um, yeah, and he's... <laughs> basically, that's every New Zealander, in my opinion. Whoa, hello. No, or in my... Like, when I, when I ever try and... <laughs> Whenever I try and em- em- emulate the accents, that's sure. what I go for. <laughs> or just, or Jermaine, you know, it's either lock, Dan Lock, this, or something like this. And then it's just, and those are the two. I have nothing in between. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> also, uh, WandaVision and uh, What If, uh, which has got me very curious. I'm hoping it's What If Wolverine was in, uh, was in Avengers Endgame. And then we could see the final half hour of Avengers Endgame. And then just have Hugh Jackman in there. <laughs> yeah, what if, indeed. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. And then you could get away with that, because it's just a what if, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you can get away with it now, now that Disney has it. Oh, and Fantastic Four. Hello. Finally, Marvel was it, Studios. Was that announced? Yeah, it's confirmed. I gotta say, though, that one almost has me the most stoked, because... There just hasn't been a great Fantastic Four movie ever made. Mm. the The best ones were the those the mid two thousand five and uh, and his sequel. Yeah. Um. And you know they weren't like amazing, but I also think that they're underrated because people seem to really hate them. And I just think that they're like they're fine. You know, <laughs> yeah. they're okay. The, m- mostly good casting. Mo- yeah, that's true. Except mostly for good casting. except for Jessica Alba as Sue Storm because. Like, let's just get real. She, she, okay. It's not that I'm against, like, casting out of, like, 
um, the the initial racial spectrum or whatever. Like, I it's just that they tried to make her blonde, and she and she's not. She doesn't look anything like a, like a traditional blonde. Mm. She looks very Latina because that's what she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so why not just have a Latina Sue Storm? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, although you you are forgetting we are you know Hollywood's in the last twenty years has been. Com- completely short on blonde actresses. There's just, <laughs> you know, there's just none. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, where where did they all go? <laughs> where did they yeah, all yeah. go? Dude, that huge blonde culling of uh, <laughs> 2001. The, the blonde culling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jenny McCarthy, Pam Anderson, come this way, please. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Yikes! Dark. So, so do you know what year it is, Doug? It is uh, the year like like okay, are you you're asking? Yeah, currently, currently the year that we exist in in yeah. real life mm-hmm. is 2019. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should cover we should cover a, a contemporary film and comic adaptation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Actually, you know, yeah. if we were if we were recording in 2015. Obviously, Back to the Future Part 2 mm-hmm. would be on the menu. If we're recording in 2005, mm-hmm. Transformers the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, referring to the animated, first animated. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I guess takes place in 2005, and then, then the live-action one takes place the same year that it came out, so like 2007? That sounds about yeah. right, yeah. 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 But, yeah. Well, it's not Bury the Lead. Yeah. This week, we are covering Blade Runner. So, Blade Runner. Um, Blade Runner has kind of an, an interesting and varied history. It's based on a 68 novel by Philip K. Dick, one of my favorite science fiction writers, uh, called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, I actually do have a question. Yeah. Well, do androids dream of electric sheep? Does it answer the question? Uh, the answer, I think, is pretty explicitly no. Oh, they don't? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. Um, now... I know it's pretty popular, especially this day and age, to say, uh, oh, you know, I love, you know, Philip K. Dick or whatever, or Philip K. Dick is, you know, is so influential, blah, blah, blah. I mean, truthfully, I've been watching uh, Altered Carbon, and Altered Carbon is, like, so influenced by um, certainly a lot of Philip K. Dick works and Harlan Ellison works as well. Um, but I, I actually truthfully, I actually truthfully do really like Philip K. Dick stuff. I have a bunch of his books, um, and you know, I'm not just gonna, uh, I'm not just gonna say, um, oh, you know, that I sit down and that's all I read is is old school science fiction. I actually tried to read um, a book called The Number of the Beast uh, by Robert Heinlein, Robert Heinlein who wrote uh, Starship Troopers, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. And I couldn't get through it, like legitimately. And some of the ideas were interesting enough, sure. But uh, first off, he couldn't write women worth a damn. First of all, there's two women, and he tries to take different points of view of different characters. Great. And the women can't stop talking about their own bodies and stuff like that. And, and no, I'm, I'm not even joking, right? They're, they're like, time, you know, one of them, says she's, she's getting a little older, and she's talking about how her breasts aren't quite the way they used to be. And I'm like, come on on you know <laughs> he's like he's like well well they have breasts right so so they must talk must, about must talk them. about them all about the time them, yeah. uh, <laughs> and and like uh, and honestly there was a leap in logic where there were some people who tried to kill the main characters and um through a process of elimination 
somehow they determined that there would be assassins were extraterrestrials from another dimension just through like logic like using logic like like sitting like how you would sit down and say well who's who's wanting to kill me well it can't be these people because you know i work with them and they'd have nothing again blah 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 and then the end result was the time traveling aliens from another dimension yeah that's got to be it well i mean if you go by sherlock holmes uh they they basically if they've ruled out every other possibility that must be the one <laughs> and and you, I, I hear what some of you are saying i was like steve that sounds awesome <laughs> and and on a level yeah it kind of does um but i couldn't get through the book uh, it's it was just too difficult to read so when i say philip k dick even now 50 uh 50 odd years later 40 50 years later it's still very readable and very interesting i totally mean it i totally mean it uh john windham uh, is give and take with me. He's another uh, old school science fiction author. He wrote Day of the Triffids. Uh, and, it's pronounced uh, Triffids? I always thought it was Triffids. You could be right. Hmm. Um, I mean, but then again, like, I, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that's just when I, read, that's when, I read, when I read it, that's how I heard it in my head. That one I told you opened with uh, what is now kind of a trope of a guy waking up in a hospital all alone oh, yeah, in, a, yeah. in an apocalypse sort like of scenario. Like Walking Dead and 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Like that, that, yeah, well, you know, it's a great setup. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it opened, and I was like, oh, hey, well, you know. Um, but I, with, with John Wyndham, even I have some give and take stuff with. But I have never read a Philip K. Dick book. Where I was just like, oh, this just isn't doing it for me, you know, or it's just, just kind of silly. Philip K. Dick is really, really interesting stuff. Um, now, his his original source material, Do Enter a Stream of Electric Sheep, is sim- very similar in premise to Blade Runner. Um, but let me tell you right now, the Earth of the future in Androids does not look like Earth of the future in Blade Runner. I mean of the present. Of the present, my yeah, apologies. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much like, like a desolate wasteland. It's like everybody's left. Although, to be fair, actually, it's uh, November 2019, so we don't know how things are going to change in the next few months. Yeah, but someone could be listening to this in November. <laughs> That's true. And they could yeah. look out the window and they could see <laughs> mm-hmm. what you know what's mm-hmm. going on with the political climate. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it's a desolate wasteland. There's like basically nothing left alive. And so there's, uh, and this is important stuff because this re- this part really lends itself to the theme of the movie and the book, in that humans use they call them androids, not replicants, but they are basically a, like Blade Runner organic androids, organic machines. Okay, so um, they are they are basically replicants. They're yeah, they're just a different name, but they call them androids. There's very little way of telling who is who is an android and who is human. So the question is then, you know, with most of the humans being encouraged to go off world to the colonies and uh, basically you're leaving kind of the poor left behind on Earth. How do you tell the difference between the poor and the androids? That's the tricky thing. And the core of the, the book is that it's through empathy that you can tell. Because and this is what they say. It's not necessarily true, but androids just don't have real feelings. Not like people. Mm. No, they, they don't have real feelings. Now, the problem is, is that most of the people who are left behind are so outrageously numb by life that you could argue they don't really have much in the way of feelings either. Um, <clears throat> now, Decker in the book is not like Decker in the movie. He's not Harrison Ford. He's kind of like, just kind of like a sad husk of a man who's left behind. <laughs> okay. So, so um, <sighs> there's only two ways, though, that people can can tell each other that they're that they feel empathy one is to own live animals 
if you can own a real live animal and take care of it, you must be gosh darn the most compassionate person around. Like you can care for an animal and keep it and, and keep it alive. Of course, most animals are completely extinct, so only the rich really have them, but a lot of people pretend to have them by having robot animals. Decker, in this case, owns a black electric sheep. Um, okay. But it's his goal to one day save up enough money to buy his wife a goat. He's married. What a this, guy. He's married in this. Uh, uh, the yeah. other way to demonstrate empathy <clears throat> is everyone kind of hooks up into this network uh, for, uh, it was called Mercerism. Uh, based off this this guy named Mercer, and everyone hooks up into this into this big old network like the Matrix, and they all run the same program. It's that of a guy climbing up a hill where people throw rocks at him, and everyone feels really really bad for him and bad for each other, and that's what it means to be human, in the book. Wow. <laughs> now along the way, uh, Decker goes. He tests Rachel. And uh, uh oh, it gave a false positive that she was a replica, or sorry, an android, but she wasn't really. Uh oh, which means have the Blade Runners accidentally been killing real people this whole time? Ah, psych. No, no, she's actually an android. It wasn't a false positive. And along the way, Decker's hunting down these six or these Nexus six models, and uh, and one of the androids convinces him temporarily that he's also an android. Decker, though, is later able to able to establish by running tests on himself that he is, in fact, a human being. And this is worth mentioning. The novel states explicitly he is a human being. Uh, yeah. yeah. Then then it gets a little heady near the end. Uh, Decker manages to, to defeat all the androids. Then he goes out into the wilderness of Oregon, and he starts climbing a hill. And then he has this realization that, well, hold on, I'm climbing this hill, and there's these rocks and stuff. Maybe... Maybe this is like the simulation that everyone plugs into, like Mercerism. Is this real? What's what's really going on? Uh, oh, hey, look, there's a spider, and uh, hey, an actual factual spider, a real spider, brings it home. No, sorry, it was a toad. The spider was some someone who was torturing a spider. He finds a toad, an actual factual live toad, brings it home. It's like, look, I found a real live toad. No, that's a robot too. Okay, bum. Wow, the bum, end. Bum bum bum. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the book in a nutshell. 1974 rolls around. You say numb show? No, it, it's all numb. Um, everything everything yeah, is numb. Uh, 1974, Alan E. Norse releases a book called The Blade Runner. The Blade Runner has to do with uh, the future where medical supplies are in short, or short supply. So there are these smugglers who uh, smuggle and medical supplies to people who need them for a cost and um that has basically nothing to do with anything else as, as what we're going to be talking about today but just know that there was a, a screen treatment that was written i thought i think i think i showed you it looks like it was going to be a movie but then it didn't so there were these scripts that were floating around some producers desks and mm. one was a treatment for do androids dream of electric sheep another one was for the blade runner and <clears throat> one of the producers this must this must be must be a very simplified way of explaining it, but one of the producers saw the story but liked the title from the other one. Maybe. I mean, it could be that simple. I mean, to be fair, Blade Runner is a cooler name. It is a cooler name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, well, look, I'm gonna, if I'm going to be putting millions of dollars into this, mm -hmm. I want to have the coolest name possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, so we get this movie, 1982. Yes. Good Lord. Uh, Which was, uh, looking back, if you look at like some of the movies that were released that year, yeah. pretty killer year for cinema. Hmm. Uh, just off the top of my head, yep. uh, E.T., uh, The Thing, hmm. um, Wrath of Khan, hmm. Blade Runner. 
And uh, that's all that comes to mind at the moment. But but I do remember reading a list that was like a lot more awesome films. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, classics. The ones that are still watched and revered today. So, Doug, uh, tell us, Ridley Scott, what what, uh, what was he known for? What had he been doing up to that point? The only big movie I can think of before Blade Runner that Ridley Scott did was um, Alien. 1979. Yeah, which was, you know, like, uh, that's a good one. Like, that's a real good one. Uh, so, you know, let's take a quick uh, quick little peek to what happened between... Because Alien was 1979, this is 82. What was he doing in the meantime, if... If, well, if not just working on Blade Runner. If reports are to be believed, torturing his cast and crew. Apparently <laughs> the cast referred to Blade Runner in production as Blood Runner because uh, Mr. Scott is a bit of a tyrant on set, apparently. Um, well, you know, uh, you know, it's one of those cases where you, you know that he's a very... He always seems so stern. He's a, mm. he's a director with a vision who has a lot of pressure on him because he works with movies that are like... It costs a lot of money, and he really is like devoted to his vision. Um, Although fans of the Alien franchise may scoff at that, given his recent comments about he'll crank out as many Alien movies as people will let him. Well, you know the thing is though, actually, Alien Covenant. This is a tangent, and you know if, if this gets cut out, I don't mind. But Alien Covenant, I found to be very underrated. It's an only big problem was that it was an alien movie. Mm. Um, and if it was its own standalone science fiction film with a little bit more context, it could have been... Actually, like, it could have been really great. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, oh, okay, there you go. He was a co-director um, for Roxy Music's uh, Avalon music video. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that music video needed more than one director. Uh, it's just his co-director, so... And then this other thing that I don't know what it is. Some other music video looks like. What else did you do before Alien? Before Alien, uh, The Duelists. Uh, he did. He did. He was a TV director beforehand, hmm. so he he did a Zed lot of these. Zed Cars. Hmm? Zed Cars was a long-running BBC television series. He only did one episode, but, but uh, yeah, he did a few episodes. Do, of, well, hold on. That, when was that? Because Zed Cars six. Uh, yeah, so in '65. Zed Cars uh, coincidentally was a contemporary of Doctor Who, and they borrowed a lot of uh, cast and crew between the two of them. Okay. Yeah, but it was like a police drama. Well, there you go. Um, but yeah, mostly TV shows through the 60s, so he must have been... Well, no, I guess he's, he's pretty old, so I guess he wasn't like like that young. And then The Duelist in 1977, which must have done well enough... Or Duelists, uh, plural. The Duelists in 1977, followed up by Alien, which was then followed up by Blade Runner, if we're just going by the... Um, the feature films. Mm-hmm. And then after Blade Runner was Legend, which uh, would Deckard must have seen at some point uh, during his journeys. He has, he has this crazy dream <laughs> about, about, watching, yeah. about watching Legend. He's like, oh, like, oh why did I... Hey, you know, hold on. Because I did watch Legend very recently uh, with, with my son Andrew. Because um, I told Andrew that um, it's widely reported, and I don't know the accuracy of this, but it's widely reported that... Um, Miyamoto, uh, creator of Legend of Zelda, uh, took inspiration from Legend. And I told Andrew, I said, inspiration, it's a very superficial thing. It's its not, like, very detailed. And, you know, he had a heart. I kind of had to point some things out, but, you know. I mean, it's possible, you know, but the... the 
parallel. This, it's not parallels. There's some things that kind of seem like they could be references. It's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not obvious. Yeah. Other than the guy, you know, Tom Cruise, and that one looks a little bit like Link. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Some of the fairy stuff too. Uh, but I don't. I don't know. That's the thing, right? Uh, no, I hear you. Um, now, Blade Runner. I. Uh, it, why don't you walk us through? Walk us through the plot in a in a numbshell, as they say. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, uh, basically there are originally six replicants who made an escape for it to head to Earth. Um, however, two of them didn't make it when they tried to, I think when they initially tried to break into Tyrell Industries. Um, it was a fence, right? It was an electric fence? Something like that. Two yeah. of them got fried. Uh, and so they were trying to, um, infiltrate it in a different way. And, and uh, Leon, one of the replicants, tried to infiltrate by becoming an employee there, but then because uh, because of the alert of the replicants escaping, um, all the employees are going through um, checks to, to see if they're replicants. Um, of course, they don't they don't know that's what the questionnaire is about. Uh, they didn't. There isn't a, a question on there going, "Are you a replicant?" <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. Leon might be dumb enough to check <laughs> yes on that. Well, I mean. Just like when you're filling out inf- uh, immigration papers, it's like, are you a t- are you a known terrorist? <laughs> it's like, mm, uh, no, no, <laughs> that'll fool them. <laughs> I truthfully, as an aside, I like that they are all different kinds of replicants. They're not all soldiers. Leon was a laborer. Um, uh, Pris was uh, she was a uh, pleasure pleasure, boss, pleasure model. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was um, Roy and Z. Uh, oh shoot, um, Zora. Zora, thank you. Yeah, Zora. Yeah. She was she was an assassin, if I recall, and uh, Roy was a was a frontline troop. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I I like that dynamic um, because from the get go, they're just not like a bunch of renegade you know, soldiers or whatever. Yeah. It's, it brings a dynamic of varying degrees of varying degrees of competency, varying degrees of skill, but they have, they have the same agenda mm-hmm. and there's, there's, they form a connection. They legitimately form a connection. And I liked, I liked that decision. They are unified through their mortality as, as it were. Um, and, Anyways, Leon botches the test up because he sucks at it. And uh, so instead of, you know, he, actually, don't worry, Steve, he keeps his cool. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he keeps his cool. Anyways, he blows the guy away with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and that basically alerts um, the police enough that they bring in Deckard, who is uh, played by Harrison Ford in the film. And he is a retired Blade Runner, so he doesn't want to have anything to do with his dirty business anymore. It is a too emotionally taxing. He gives him the shakes. He's already an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, would would you believe he doesn't have a choice? He's got to he's got to hunt down these four Blade Runner. No, he's got to hunt down these four replicants, regardless. Um, you know, the sad thing is, is that he's not old. Deckard isn't isn't no old. no he's I mean this is uh, b- before Return of the Jedi Harrison Ford <laughs> he, right yeah, um, yeah and he you're right no he had to retire even though even though on the surface he agrees with with basically the doctrine of the day and that these are basically just machines they don't even call them killing they call them retirement when you're putting one down um, it on that emotional almost human level. You know he's been killing these people, 
and it's actually worn down on him, one could argue subconsciously, if you want to say that. But he's, he's had to retire, and he's like 30 or something. You know? Yeah, he's in his, he's got to be in his 30s. Yeah. Uh, um, but, um, yeah, he's not... <laughs> um, yeah, he's definitely not not an old guy. He's not he's not Harrison Ford of of today. Uh, he's the Harrison Ford of of modern day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, basically he you know he follows up with uh, with Tyrell, the the corporate uh, head of the Tyrell Corporation, mm-hmm. um, to sort of just get some more information. And he winds up doing a replicant uh, test on one of his. Uh, Tyrell's um, employees who doesn't know that she is a replicant but turns out she is like the most advanced model and ha- he, he had to, the whole test had to go on like um, he had like a hundred questions when it's normally like 20 or if it was Leon to be like two two basically yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like how do you feel Leon they're on to me <laughs> run <laughs> that, okay here's another thing too it's just like Step number one, I think, if you're screening employees, would be a metal detector at the door. <laughs> How did he get the gun in? <laughs> Actually, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, and basically, it's the the you know Deckard's on the hunt. Uh, it, it's kind of a film noirish film, so it it's it's it follows uh, Deckard kind of tracing his way into the various replicants' lives. Meanwhile, it also follows the replicants as they are trying to figure out how to get into get into meet uh, Tyrell um, because he's a hard man to get to, especially if you are a fugitive. Um, and he, re- yeah, and he retires uh, Zora pretty, pretty fast by doing this awesome, like, um, you know... Zoom in on on a picture like a million jillion times, um, uh, and then and then Leon goes to like break his neck and uh, and and then Rachel saves him as she's coming to terms with the fact that she she's a replicant and she's left Tyrell and uh, and they have and and basically she comes to Deckard. Actually, yeah, you know it's not it's implicitly said, but almost like it, to to kind of like come to terms with who she actually is and to sort of find uh, her humanity and emotion through him. She wants to confront him and make him make him admit that he's wrong, I think. Yeah. She she wants him to, to she wants him to say, "Okay, you know what? I wasn't right. You're a human, my bad." And when he finally does say it, it's not a satisfactory answer and she knows that he's lying. You know? Well, you know, you got to give credit to Harrison Ford's performance is that he's uh, his, his, the way he plays Deckard, he's not a very good liar. No, he's not. <laughs> he's the worst, actually. Although that impression he gives of the nerdy guy talking to Zora oh, is yeah. great. Well, that's the thing is that he <laughs> he does a great job of him acting as like he's like, hey, uh, hey, could I get in here? I gotta look for holes, you know. He's, some guys they just try to take a peek at a beautiful woman's body. You know what that's like? It's like you know, I'm like yeah, actually, like really, it's it actually is pretty cool seeing uh, the detective work uh, in play. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, am I going for a whole plot summary? You know, you know or well, just, uh, just sort of the... I, I mean, I guess that, that does, that'll do too. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Um, disclaimer for those of you who didn't know, uh, Blade Runner, okay, bombed when it, when it, when yes. it's, uh, when it was initially theatrically released, uh, which must have been a tremendous disappointment. 
especially when you look at the special effects. You oh, look yeah. at how much work was put into it. You look at how much grief it was put in, was put into the making of this movie. Uh, Douglas Turnbull was uh, was visual effects supervisor and has had had an astounding career. Um, but I mean, he got paid either way. Yeah, um, true. And it is it is disappointing, but historically not surprising that a movie like this wasn't going to perform particularly well. I felt the same way when when the new Blade Runner movie came out. I, I didn't think it was going to do that well. You know, the thing is, neither one of them come across as very, like, commercial films, That's right? That's just it, yeah. It's like, this is, I mean, it'll probably be the same with the new Blade Runner, is that it'll be a slow burn. It's, it's returns, uh, money-wise, will be a trickle in. Mm-hmm. And it will probably make its money back but not through uh not through the, the theatrical sales and 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 it was it was uh the case with the newer blade runner where mm-hmm. it just it just wasn't it didn't bring in a huge audience yeah and, and it's because in part with both films um they are intellectual films intellectual does not necessarily mean better so mm-hmm. let's establish that as we talk right mm-hmm. now intellectual does not equal better it means that it's there's there's a lot of you have to sit down and pay attention to the movie. It's it's not a popcorn flick. It's no. it's not just like, um, I mean, it, you know, they actually some of them do have pretty good action sequences, but it's not. Well, I mean, uh, compared, it's it's not um as like fun and and like instantly. It's not a crowd pleaser like a Marvel film is. I right? just you know? rewatched Shazam last night because yeah. my wife hadn't seen it, and we thought it would be okay for Scarlet. She's almost six. It's it was half and half. It's got, um, it's got some scary moments in it. I'd yeah, say. but those uh, monsters. They, yes, and legitimately they were. Um, but that's a popcorn movie. It legitimately is because mm-hmm. the action scenes are are fun and gripping, and you can kind of see the beats where you know it's just like okay, well, it's been about fifteen minutes. We're due for an action scene, you know, sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? Um, that and again, that's not that's not disparaging Shazam. It is very. It is very by the numbers in a lot of ways, but it's also a very fun movie. I, I enjoy Shazam. I think I think it's hilarious. I think it's great fun, uh, but I wouldn't call Shazam an intellectual movie. No. Uh, first off, Mark Strong is in it, and he's the bad guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing against Mark Strong. He just he does his job very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas whereas Blade Runner and the new Blade Runner, both these films that are. Both these films, you know, the action beats, they happen. They don't happen necessarily predictably. And they don't happen necessarily in a satisfying way. In this first movie, Deckard goes in for an action scene and then gets his ass handed to him left, right, and center. Every time he's he's basically got the drop on someone, they beat him up. (laughs) And it's it's only really through um, mistakes made by the replicants themselves, really, that... Uh, Deck was able to prevail. Actually, no, I did notice that when watching the movie, uh, is that uh, he was very close to dying a lot. Yeah. I think, uh, so yeah, circumstance kind of saved his butt uh, every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think truthfully, Deckard was right earlier in the film when he when he declined, saying you know he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, he was right. He couldn't do it anymore. It was it was a mistake, especially with with the, some of these newer models, you know. Uh, this wasn't a game that that he could play anymore, and repeatedly was shown that. I mean, and there's a degree where I kind of like that because, you know, oh, I'm retired, I don't do this anymore, and then he gets back on the street and is you know a crack shot and mm-hmm. wins every fight and sort sort of thing. You know? Yeah, true, true. So I mean that that is is kind of a nice change. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, the movie came out June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two, and as you said, yeah, it it was a slow burn. 
But come, I want to say the 90s, because it was right around the time when I saw it for the first time. So I might even say like late 90s, 2000s. Um, then the movie had gained enough of a cult following enough notoriety that the director's cut was released. Yes. And the first thing the director's cut did was take out the narration. And well, they, they never wanted the narration in the first place. Mm-hmm. The studio said that um, the, the movie was too hard to follow and there were, or there was too much uh, silence and not enough going on and and uh, the endi- ending was too gloomy and uh, or, or, uh, or very or unresolved. So they, they filled in an ending with like a mountainscape. It's just like stock footage or something like it that. It was from The Shining. Oh, the, fo- the, Shining. the footage was from The Shining. Yeah, oh. from the drive up to the to the uh, to the hotel. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Um, and uh, so yeah, and then a narration over it about like, well, we went up north. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> some some people say that Harrison Ford purposely did a bad job at narrating because he didn't want to do it. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's a lot of people kind of. I mean, because it was a job. Yeah. So, you know, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, Deckard was kind of a stoic fellow, right? Yeah. Um, and also, I can't really say because I actually haven't seen the no, original theatrical it's cut. It's so hard to find these days. Yeah. Uh, and I think, seen... I think that's by design. I think that's by design. Yeah. The director's cut I have seen and then the final cut I have mm-hmm. seen. And uh, hey, we we're fortunate, if I recall, to watch Final Cut in theaters. Yeah, we were. We, at the uh, old Granville 7. Seven. Yeah. I saw it twice, actually, oh, cool. yeah, in yeah. theaters. Um, I'll also mention that there is a, wor- there is a worrisome line. Uh, I mean, there's a few, but there is a definite worrisome line in the theatrical narration where Deckard says he doesn't know why Roy spared him. I think it's fairly obvious why Roy spared him. At the very end... Roy says, living in fear, now you know what it's like to be a slave. And then, you know, because he rescues Deckard at the very, very end, as, a, as opposed to hunting him down and trying to kill him. There were lots of instances when Roy actually could have killed him. He was just playing with him to inspire fear in him. And the motivation was that so someone would remember him at the end. And I, I think it's it's pretty clear so that he could he could f- finish, thematically it was for, the, for Deckard to finish fully empathizing with the replicants. Um, yeah, it was just to, to show them uh, what it was like to live in their in their shoes, to, mm-hmm. to, to show a human, you know, you, you and I aren't so different. We mm-hmm. both fear for our lives. Yeah. yeah, he could learn to love one. Could he learn to feel like one? And the answer was yes to both. Um, so I, I, so I, anyways. Which also kind of, um, I almost feel... Uh, the the uh, take on the film where he's a replicant, uh, Deckard is replicant, almost like devalues that uh, that relationship in a way. Let's come back to that because okay. I do want to address that. Okay, cool. Because um, <laughs> I, 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 I know already, already I think I'm 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 hearing people screaming at the mics. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, or at their speakers, or both mic and speakers. Why not? It depends. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the director's cut did fairly well. It was it was a very popular rental. Um, this was just before video rental stores went went kablooey, basically. And yeah, and that's when we first watched the film of our call. Mm-hmm. We went to our dad's place and he and we watched Blade Runner together. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a kind of a fond memory, even though it was a very um, uh, underwhelming presentation. You know, via a little VHS tape of our call, it was a tiny little TV. Yeah. And, um, but it was still kind of a. I don't know, still kind of a special And also because it was, it was very different from anything I'd seen before. Yeah. I hadn't really seen much science fiction like that. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I hadn't seen much 
of that dystopic sci-fi certainly well we were i think we were at that point pretty primarily just into star trek and star wars and stuff like you know the, yeah, the, the normal the, stuff, the, yeah. the basics yeah yeah um and you wouldn't see this this kind of dystopic stuff too much on tv i mm-hmm. mean i know there was like the ray bradbury theater and stuff like that but i mean i wasn't watching any of that at the i time. think we were acquainted a little bit with terminator at that point yeah yeah which uh but that was that didn't really take place in the in the dystopic future it was present day yeah yeah and then the final cut came out uh again it came out oh geez actually now how long's it been now for the final cut uh Actually, honestly, probably like fifteen years. It may, maybe, you know, maybe more like twelve or thirteen. But you know what? Like, but like, I feel at least a decade. De- definitely say. more than ten. I'd say less than fifteen. There are also kind of sort of sub versions out there. Like this was in the European release. This was on the television release. This what blah. So there's there's technically quite a few versions out there. But the ones that people primarily seen are the theatrical, the director's, the director's cut, cut, and, and the, the final, final cut. cut yeah, so. uh, the final cut. Um, I I like the final cut, even if I will be the first to admit it wasn't really necessary. If our call is not that different than the director's cut, not cuts. really. I mean, yes, they clean up some of the effects. Yes, they clean up a couple shots that didn't actually look very good or whatever yes they do do some stuff that do do he they do some stuff that uh that aids the overall film sure but um i think that there's a legitimate point in time when as a filmmaker just like put it done it's done put a button in it it's done because you can find something to change forever yeah. In your in your film, yeah. there comes a point where yeah, you can make it better, and then you can make it better, and then you can make it better forever, basically. And well, then at some point, you just gotta let it go. There's a, the way I see it is there's a point where you're not gonna edit it better. At some point, it's gonna just be edited differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, but you know, at least it's safe to say at this point, the final cut is the final cut. Yeah. And so there you go. There's there's the line. It's called the final cut, and then we can just leave it at that. So the comic, which then came out uh, a couple months later, let's let's segue right into that. Uh, it is Marvel Super Special number twenty two. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, and Doug got me this comic uh, two Christmases ago. I want to say. Sounds I was about going right. through my Instagram feed and saw how delighted I was. Sign back in the day. Yeah. And this was related, uh, sorry, released in September 1982. Then in October and November, they they split them up, uh, split it into two parts. Uh, the first part, October, the second part, November of 82. I got it at uh, VCon. Is, oh. uh, I was just browsing through the comic section. I saw that and I was like, that's cool. And then I was like, it's after Steve's birthday. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I can... It can wait till Christmas. Yeah, I'll just get it now and just sit on it till Christmas, and then, and then the rest is history. That's that's the way to do it, sir. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's the way to do it. Uh, so it was uh, written by Archie Goodwin. Art was by Al Williamson, uh, Carlos Garzon with Dan Green and Ralph Reese. Uh, and let me tell you right now, just just from the top, out of all that we've done so far, uh, four four-ish episodes, I guess, whatever. Yeah. This one, the art is probably my favorite. So far, truthfully, the art is my favorite. I would definitely say that uh, this one's the best so far at really capturing the likeness of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, like this guy, like it looks like Harrison Ford. Um, it looks like uh, Rutger Hauer. Like it's actually, it really does capture um, the essence of the characters pretty well. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though. I think the because I've got the super special twenty-two. I think the only thing that is missing is the the covers. For the two later, oh, of course, 
Yeah, it's missing the, the two covers from the two later releases. Yeah, what they should have done is should, should have taken those covers and gone back in time a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> and then inserted yeah. them into the super special. That would have been better. Yeah, uh, I mean, I kind of like this color, but uh, or this cover, but the colors, the colors yeah. are a little kind of bizarre, to be honest. Like, they're Deckard's in full color, but he also has, like, two versions of him uh, from different angles in monochrome. Uh, and these, the, all these other side characters are presented in just plain colors. Actually, ironically, despite the fact that this is a more detailed artwork on the front, mm-hmm. the, this uh, Deckard looks less like Harrison Ford than the one on the inside. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it must be different different artists, but um, but yeah, that's just kind of, that's kind of interesting, is that despite the, the level of detail the cover artist was able to go into, um, the guy the guy who did the main job, uh, I feel like, did a better better job on that at least on that front on the capturing the likeness front uh continuing with the art because i adore it it's um they didn't take the easy way out when they were doing the art here there was a lot of attention in the film played to shading and and the way colors interact with each other where you take something like diseased and dark and gloomy with bright neon flashing and stuff like that and having that contrast in the film and then really doing a serviceable job of it of it here in the film or in the comic adaptation as well i mean so just just from the get-go i like the way the light or light quote-unquote interplays in here Uh, an excellent example is, is when he goes to meet the uh uh, the, when Deckard goes to meet the merchant in, in the shop here, actually, I, I really like that this purple light is, is glowing and the shading is green, but there's kind of different degrees of the, of the, of the purple. And, but it's only, it's used sparingly. It's in one frame. It's so, I mean, just on the surface, I really enjoy the art. Um, yeah. I mean, there's lighting is definitely a big part of the, the film. Uh, you see that through and through. Sometimes to the point where it almost is, uh, you have to wonder about the logistics of the real world of the film. <laughs> like in the, in, uh, J- what's his name? JF? Yeah, Sebastian. Yeah, Sebastian, like his, um, the, the lights outside of his windows and how they're just like flying around and like pointing back. I'm like, what's doing that? <laughs> like, it looks cool, but what's, what's, <laughs> what's doing that? <laughs> um, how does anyone sleep? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and, uh, yeah, those, those kind of, uh, there's moments in here that, um, that kind of play around with the fact that the lighting is so strong, like, um, the, the kissing scene between, uh, I keep wanting to call him so far, but Deckard and, um, and Rachel, like they they play very much like there's this really kind of yellow and, and they play with the lights through the blinds. I think it really works. Um, I will say as an aside, mm-hmm. in the film, kind of rapey. A little bit. This is the second time you can, you can, <laughs> we've had to... <laughs> yeah, I think uh, modern audiences would be very uncomfortable because you have to kind of almost psychoanalyze the scene to see mm. why it's not... <laughs> but yeah, right. But like, you have to go. You, I mean, they have to kind of play around with the idea of like, this is something that she actually really does want, but she's she's so afraid of it that he has to like push her. But at the same time, and it, like, pro you could argue programming. Yeah, and you could argue that she's she's on. Yeah, she's on the cusp of like the other replicants on the cusp of actually embracing emotions, and she hasn't gone there yet, and she's about to, and he's pushing her into him. But but yeah, <laughs> but but there's enough. Um, but there's you know enough situations where 
<laughs> where that kind of behavior and really pushy um, over overt uh, sexuality is it, it, just it just kind of it, it, it's a little creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And at the at the very at the very least, it's creepy. You could you could argue a bit about uh, uh, st- it's still not helpful, but uh, Deckard is still kind of viewing them as machines. So you, yeah, you can yeah, you can throw it's not that even, That's not much better. Uh, <laughs> that's just it. It's not. It's there's there's no really great way of rationalizing mm-hmm. it. Kind of like kind of like Goldfinger. I know everybody loves Goldfinger. Oh, it's the best James Bond movie. It's also kind of rapey. It, it, oh, yeah, oh, that one oh, definitely. She, she actually wanted it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <it's> like, okay. <laughs> uh, you know that one. That's one that I think that you really have to stretch <laughs> to like justify it. So I, I'm actually really not cool with the Goldfinger pussy galore scene. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, scenes about uh, I, I like. I like. Although, isn't it amazing? I'm really sorry. Small time. Uh, okay. Isn't it amazing though in cinema because they're, they're almost 20 years apart. Yeah. Goldfinger is 64, and this is this is 82. Isn't it interesting how like though that that still that was a theme still that you would see in movies where it's just like the woman hesitated, said she didn't want it, but the man, you know. Another is that, situ- is that weird? Another right? situation is the original Rocky. Oh really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Where I haven't he, seen it. Where the uh, Adrian is when he, he takes her out on a date. He takes her home, and she wants to leave, and he won't let her leave, and he basically essentially forces them to kiss. And again, you can sort of psychoanalyze it, going like, you know, like she's she's just he's trying to help her overcome her fear, but yeah, it's but it's still super uncomfortable. Um, and so, especially when you start grouping all these movies together, yeah. so in every single instance, <laughs> yeah. it's technically out. Nah, I'm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy if we don't have to have any more of yeah, let's... those scenes ever again. Uh, yeah, because, you know, like... Uh, actually, I think it could have been actually po- poignant, to be honest, if in this story, if it was the, the other way around. In her discovering her humanity and her drives, and that, that you know, she has emotions and feelings and urges and stuff, that she doesn't pressure him into sex, but she is the... Uh, Aggressor in some ways that she comes on very strongly mm. and saying that she wants that for once she gets to do something that she wants to do and he's like yeah because because yeah she and and she's insisting how she feels and like and needs love and attention and 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 uh, and and that again makes a case to him as a as a human mm-hmm. uh, I mean maybe um, <laughs> that that replicants can feel and and can. And and need yeah so yeah actually that would have been a, I mean, it was a much stronger choice actually when they find out about because um, I, I I do want to I did want to point this out in the movie um, when they find out I think it was about Zora's death and they they the other replicants they start to cry in particular Roy his facial expressions are very much like they almost look over the top with with how much he's emoting his how sad he is mm-hmm. and it's because it's because these replicants are not used to emotions. They when they start off, they're very emotionless and then they learn to develop these emotions. And so like grief and you keep seeing it through the movie, grief and anger and and all those emotions are so new to them that they overwhelm them every single time. They become overwhelmed. That's why Roy kills uh both um uh, Tyrell and Sebastian. He becomes irrationally overwhelmed by anger because he's just not used to these emotions. One thing on that note uh, is that I like about the comics um, is that the scenes about uh, of the scenes where characters die 
are are drawn or colored in a very particular way. Mm. So if you look at Zora's death right here, yeah, uh, sharp red, sharp yellow in the background, like very clear. If you go to uh, the death of Tyrell, um, boom, black on red or mm -hmm. no red on black, I should say, um, and it's like it's very sharp. Um, very sharp image. Mm -hmm. And similarly with Pris, when she's being gunned down, sharp yellow in the back, uh, sort of a pale orange, maybe a light brown. Mm. Um, so that's, I, I think that it just wants to emphasize that um, the, the, the animal is like, there's this very almost overwhelming when it comes to death, uh, how much, how much it like resonates with the replicants and just, just, or just how like sharp, these particular scenes are. I, I don't know. It could be just a way to also to like, for the sake of also censorship within the comics, that's not too graphically violent. You know, to, to, so that it's not like well, spurts of blood and well, stuff like the, that. Well, it, but then this would but, be a great way to do that. Why not take a hindrance and turn it into a strength? Then right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you take. Oh, so if that is the case, it's just like, look, we can't. Like we can't certainly be as graphic as the movie and have guts come out and, and stuff. Why yeah, not? Exactly. Why not turn it into something artistic? Uh, now, as far as the plot goes, um, when I read the comic, I noticed that there wasn't much plot difference. But now you were smart, and you were reading the comic while watching the movie, kind yeah. of going, uh, which, fortunately, Blade Runner is a long enough movie with a lot of yeah well, that, you, that you can afford to do this. I, I, read, um, I, re I read the comic as a whole yesterday night, and then I watched the movie today and was just kind of skimming through the comic as the movie was going. And there were some uh, some rearrangements, let's say, okay. that were made. Um, and this is interesting because yeah, there's stuff that you wouldn't notice unless you were because it's all the same stuff in here. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, but it thinks there's some things are rearranged. For example, uh, J.F. Sebastian, his uh, the the discussion about how old he actually is mm. um, is in the first scene when Pris comes into his um into his home in the in the comic but in the movie it's later on right before roy comes in um and also for some reason in the comic he's 20 in the movie he's 25 mm -hmm. so i don't i don't necessarily know why that is but it is um what was the other one uh is oh yeah so he, this was the most interesting uh, in, as far as rearrangement goes but it's the scene right after um, Deckard kills Zora. Um, it shows Rachel watching him, and then he gets instantly confronted by um, Leon. Freaking Leon. Right away. And then she kills Leon, and then he has a conversation with his uh, his superior, the chief, I guess, the chief of police. Yeah. Um, this is completely rearranged. The movie, what happens is he kills Zora, then he has a conversation with the chief. And there he's told that he has uh, four replicants left to kill. And mm -hmm. he's like, no, 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 just three replicants left. And he's like, he's like, no, no, you have, I was also Rachel. You have to kill her. She left Tyrell. Um, and then Rachel sees him, uh, sees him as he's having that conversation. And then after that conversation with the chief, after the, the, he leaves, then he's confronted by Leon. Mm -hmm. And then she saves him from Leon. And, um, yeah, and, and so it just, things are rearranged, uh, which is, I, I think it flows a little better in the movie, but it still works here. It doesn't like really disrupt it too much. So that's, I don't know. That was, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, 
That was the was the main change I would say that I that I noticed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was yeah, and the other ones were just pretty minor. Like the scene is is um when um Sebastian brings Roy up to Tyrell. Um that that goes uninterrupted through to Tyrell's death. Mm-hmm. Where um in this one they put the scene of actually yeah, they, actually this is also interesting. Um it's more significant than maybe I thought. But um Tyrell uh, Tyrell and Sebastian's death is what triggers this phone call to Pris or to to Sebastian's place, but Pris answers. Yeah. Where in this comic adaptation, he just kind of figures it out, mm. and he's already on his way by the time Sebastian is Sebastian and Tyrell are killed. So basically, he was um, in the film. They just kind of fed him the information. Oh, okay, well, yeah. By the way, here's who died. Blah blah blah. But in the in the comic adaptation, it's it's leaning more towards his his skills yeah. as a detective, figuring it out. And actually, this is uh, something that I don't know if this is a common problem or if, or if it was fixed when it was released as two issues. But uh, these two pages, and I, and what I'm looking what I'm looking at right now, folks, is the uh, it is the scene where Roy kills Tyrell. Yeah, these two pages are reversed. Um, the, the, this page should be here and this page should be here. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It was a little confusing. I'm like, what? And then I'm like, oh, oh. Then I read them reversed, and I was like, okay, that makes 100% sense. So I wonder I wonder how that happened. Oh, you might be right, though, if that's where... Well, well they published think, this first, though. So. No, no, no. Yeah, well, that's the thing. is that It was... This may have been a big... Mis- this may have been a mistake when the it was initially published, and then... I wonder if they fixed this issue when mm. they republished it. Or conversely, I have a special collector's version mm-hmm. that you know that there was a limited print of a dozen mm-hmm. comics where a couple pages were out of order, and I just so happened to get one of them. I so mean, if anyone wants know. to buy it off me for I don't know what do you think twenty five mil? <laughs> yeah, or it's like I mean, one of a kind. <laughs> it's a, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there you go. It sounds like a bargain. <laughs> Um, cool. Yeah. So anyways, that's, uh, <laughs> the bargain, the best I'd ever had. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are some, those are some interesting changes mm-hmm. that I could help but notice. Um, so yeah, it, but again, it's like, if you're paying attention, if you know the movie very, very well, mm-hmm. you might notice, but if you have, you've watched the movie and then a little while later you'll read the comic or the other way around, I don't think you'll notice really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I find that the narration works better in the comic um, mm-hmm. simply because there's so much visually going on in the film that translating it to the page, it's it's not a bad thing to have. I think we talked about this with the Star Trek motion picture where the captain's log is a great tool to kind of quick get some get some exposition out of the way, so, you know, set the stage a little bit in a justifiable way. In the Star Trek motion picture, yeah, they're you know it's they're they're logging stuff. You know, it would make sense if he's filing a report to log these important things. In uh, Blade Runner here, it's a film noir. You know, narrations are are one of those stereotypes of a film noir. So you know, it's it's mm-hmm. a perfectly acceptable way of conveying a lot of information that you know in a visual format you can show on screen. Yeah, I I, I much prefer in the film there not being narration because it really. I, I kind of like the fact that the film kind of lets you have to think about what the characters are, what's going on in their heads. Like, you know, like leave the, some of the work to the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, yeah, in the comic sense, like there's the like, comics typically have a lot of thought bubbles and stuff like that mm-hmm. that are sort of like help guide the action. Just because you can, you can only like in one frame you can capture one look of mm-hmm. a character, and you can't sort of see their necessarily see their um, the the transition be from one one thought to another or whatever the case may be. So you kind of have to fill in the gaps with thought bubbles, and so like the narration kind of works. For that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, all right, we're going to grab the bull by the horns here, I think. Uh, and the, the great debate of it is Deckard a replicant. Um, <laughs> I know half of you out there are like, well, yeah. And half of you out there are like, uh, no. Mm-hmm. And Ridley Scott is like, uh, yeah. Ridley Scott infamously has changed his mind oh, a few he? times. Or oh. during the course of filming, oh. Harrison Ford said that it was a discussion that they had quite frequently due to the themes of the movie and that it was agreed that Deckard was not a replicant. And there were interviews at the time, Deckard is not a replicant. And then Ridley Scott said, well, you know what? Deckard's a replicant. (laughs) Harrison Ford is still of the opinion that Deckard is not a replicant. He was playing Deckard as a human being. Um, Now, okay, but that's... That's the cast and the crew. But what does what does the movie itself support? Um, because likewise, mm-hmm. the director of Die Another Day, um, I don't remember his name, but he was a believer that James Bond is a code name and not an actual character's name. Um, even though the even the movie itself doesn't support that, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> we can get into that another time. I've written a whole bunch of articles about it, uh, <laughs> and. Um, so what does the movie itself self say? If we're going strictly by the movie, so let's 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 ignore the novel because the novel says explicitly Deckard is human, explicitly in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Let's drop the sequel, tw- uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Let's drop that because that seems to imply that Deckard's a human because he's still alive, and it was a relatively recent thing where de- where replicants had open ended life life expectancies. They the open ended life expectancy for for a replicant was developed long after supposedly Deckard would have been created. Um, but you know what? You want to drop that? That's okay. We can, we can, we can drop that too. Let's, let's go by the source material. Um, so here's the, here's the arguments I've heard for. Um, whenever the police... There's a couple occasions when the police chief talks about how many replicants escaped, uh, how many are still remaining, how many got killed on the fence or whatever and there's an inconsistency between numbers that always seems to apply that there was another replicant out there that the chief kept kind of like subtly referring to that Deckard was just kind of not paying attention to that's one part uh, another argument is the eyes anytime there's an artificial being on screen and I think this is probably the strongest argument um, they have a, their retinas have a sort of reflective thing that mm. is that is shown that way and, and Deckard displays this this reflection um, when he's speaking with Rachel in his apartment. The other one is Gaff leaving behind the unicorn, which seems to come from Deckard's dreams. How could Gaff know about this unicorn? You know, it's, it's straight out of his dreams, yet he still made the unicorn and left it as a little sign. Oh, I was here, but, uh, you know, I spared Rachel and, and you. Um, those are those are the, the most common arguments that I hear from. Mm-hmm. Here's... Here's my arguments against Deckard being a replicant. Number one, first off, he sucks at his job, big time. I, that's one of my the big ones is that I feel like if he was a replicant, he would have 
stood a better chance against the replicants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially one, especially if he's a replicant who's recruited to take down the other replicants. Let, let's say they, let's say Deckard replicant was one of them. They take him and whammo, let's wipe his memory and let's let's put in these false memories and have him go take down those other replicants. Man, you could not have picked a worse one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they picked like a bartender replicant, and then they're like, "Yeah, he'll go up against the soldiers, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> the bartender replicant, Deckard, the bartender replicant. Uh, so first of all, first of all, he's he's bad. Secondly, he's numb. But the other, uh, this is the emotional thing I want to talk about. The thing that has been present ever since the first book. And that these these replicants are designed to not really have feelings. They're designed to have, to do a job like a robot, and then die after a little while just, mm-hmm. you know, to get rid of themselves. But unfortunately, they become human. They become more human than human. Tyrell likes to say they learn the emotions. They feel these emotions, and they over are overwhelmed by these emotions. Deckard had the emotions before, and he is suppressing them through alcohol and through basically self pity. He, he he does have a bunch of pictures. Yes, granted, replicants like to have little mementos and pictures, but so do people. Replicants collect pictures because they are trying to find um, they're trying to find an emotional connection and learn learn to have a, an emotional nostalgic connection. Decker just has them because he's he's always kind of had them around. And mm-hmm. he, he's lived a life. He's, and yeah. the pictures were taken. Yeah. yeah. And so Deckard is, is numbing himself and he's he's trying to put himself away from emotions. And this is a huge thematic thing in that in some ways Deckard is becoming more mechanical while the replicants are becoming less mechanical and they meet in the middle. And I think that's why the eyes kind of flash with the reflective surface is because he again, he's he's learning what it is to kind of be human through inhuman means. He's, he's learning, he learns to love them, he learns to, to ex- live like they live and experience things as they experience things and teach himself what it's like to be human again. I don't think he's gonna give up the bottle, but you know. Maybe up north they don't sell, they don't sell the booze. Yeah, you I know. mean, and, and the reason why there's all these hints about Deckard being a replicant is because it's, the, it's a thematic choice. It's like when Deckard's talking to Rachel in the apartment, his eyes shine. It's because he's almost he's seeing through her eyes. You know, these are these are thematic things. Uh, and then and then when you factor in then all the other stuff, you factor in the sequel, twenty forty nine, uh, and you, you factor in you factor in the source material. It just it seem, would seem very strange to me and almost almost kind of cheap if he was a re- oh he was a replicant the whole time. Wah, wah. And again, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the fact that essentially there Roy is trying to share his hum- found humanity to Deckard for the sake of uh, for the sake of having almost like a legacy or, or being remembered, then it is kind of cheapened a little bit by yeah Deckard being a, a replicant. It's like oh he's like okay well I guess I got. Two years to live. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll write it down in a book. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's my terrible Harrison Ford impression. Yeah, I know. You know who's got a good Harrison Ford impression? Mark Hamill. Oh, oh yes, yeah. I've heard him. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right, that's right. Whatever, float your boat, kid. <laughs> <laughs> but t- tell me your thoughts, sir. Tell me your thoughts uh, on this subject. Yeah, I mean, I, I entirely agree with you. I think that there are there are hints. Uh, the photos was something that I noticed this time around when mm-hmm. watching the film. Uh, is that like, oh yeah, there's this. Th- 
thematic uh, like replicants keeping photos thing, but it's like, but it's not really concrete. It's and it's not something that's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not something that I think is any sort of definitive um, turning point in in, in me being convinced. Uh, yeah, I, I just I just don't see Deckard as being strong and com- competent enough to be a uh, to be a replicant, and also like. It, it, to me, it feels like he's been retired as a Blade Runner longer than he should be, like, alive. Mm. And it, it just seems like the, the the chief goes through this whole conversation of, like, you know, you know, well, you know, you don't really have a choice, you know, that kind of thing. When, I don't know, it just, it seems like, um, I don't know, like, it, it, four years is not long. No, you know, <laughs> four years isn't long at all, and so it just seems like he's he has too much history with the few people who are around him to uh, to really kind of like only be a few years old. Mm-hmm. So I I can I I'm agree, I agree with your assessment. Personally. Let's uh let's sorry go- sorry Ridley. <laughs> well, I mean. I mean, honestly, this is this is I think part of the same power of, of Blade Runner is that it does inspire conversation. Like, yeah. like truthfully, it does inspire conversation, and people I think they like the debate because it brings into question what is humanity. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like here we're supposed to think that these replicants are nothing more than machines, and they they don't even have machine parts. They're organic. They're made with, you know, with eyes and organs. And in the book, even, the only way to identify them physically differently is to drill into their bone marrow. Everything else is completely human. But society says, yeah, but we constructed them, so they're just machines or whatever. And and that's that's kind of a chilling thought because, I mean, like, when I knew of Blade Runner and Hacienda, I always thought that they were, like, robots, like they were androids. So, and... and um. The, I'm gonna tie this to the Animatrix. Um, mm, what was okay. the, the two-parter called? Um, the the whole backstory of the machine. Oh wars? shoot! It's um. Uh, oh, it's been too long since I've seen it. Um, yeah. The the pro the thing was was that even though they were dressed like humans, they they were machines inside of them, and so even though they looked like people it was too easy for society to say but they're just machines because you rip it open and there's gears and springs and stuff like that uh and the people in the society for blade runner they don't even have that excuse if you rip open these replicants you're gonna get blood real blood real organs but they are still a disposable people and uh and that's that's kind of a chilling thing and to think that that humanity would go so far as to like wipe one's mind and then send him out to kill to kill the people that initially he was you know he was escaping with or whatever that's that's kind of a tra- that's a tragic thought that's that's a really sad thing well also there's uh you don't see any recognition between uh the replicants then like they don't see him and go like hey where you been buddy (laughs) (laughs) so i definitely i definitely don't believe that he was one of the ones who escaped Mm -hmm. with with roy and the others because there's just there's no indication that that could be the case yeah some fudged numbers here and there which i also didn't notice because i was actually listening to the movie you know what they might have even fixed it in the the final cut i don't know because they they did they fixed dialogue and stuff like that but um Yeah. yeah So, I mean, I understand why people like the debate. I, yeah. I find it doesn't hold up to scrutiny, but I do like the debate itself because uh, because it it's, it is a worthwhile debate. Mm-hmm. Disposable people, the idea of disposable people and using disposable people is a good debate to have. 
especially, mm-hmm. you know, um, do you think of how far AI's come in like my lifetime and your lifetime? Yeah. 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 Scary stuff. It's true. Scary stuff. Yeah. Or even just like um, a lower class in general, or, or even like uh, you want to talk about modern topics, uh, nationalism, and how the, the look of like how, you know, these people are on the outside, uh, them trying to like come on the inside. Uh, they're you know they're trying to get into our country and re- they're refugees, but we we sort of have a level of separation, so we don't like empathize with them. Like this are all this is all this like is timely stuff. Yeah, it's all relevant stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's perfectly it's it's a perfectly good conversation to have. Um, just uh, can I just give a I guess a few uh, criticisms to the comic sure, uh, before yeah. we I guess we're moving on to comments pretty soon. I was thinking so yeah. Um. Just as far as uh, just a few things that I, you know, some things I liked and some things I didn't, uh, just little details. There is a scene, just one of the scenes with Rachel right here. So there's, there's, um, there's a scene where she's sitting on this chair and uh, she, this is her coming to terms with the fact that she is a replicant. And she's and she says, I, I, I'm not in the business. I am the business. And I, I feel like the, the comparison is like this this shot kind of takes her from a lower angle and looks up at her and she has a sort of very authoritative look mm. um, of, of, of like, I don't know, and, and just the, the line, it, it, it seems like she's, I don't know, like it's said very strongly where in the movie it's this really close personal like close up and she's almost on the verge of tears mm. and her is is her very vulnerably admitting that she she yes she is a replicant and she's like and and, and the way I don't know it's just the way that she delivers the line this panel does not capture it whatsoever mm. and so it, it's it's kind of a it's interesting how um like even just looking at it I cannot see this panel matching with the way she says the line um, and that's very interesting how just little little details like just how it's drawn versus how it's shot can convey something very different despite the fact that the lines are the same. Hmm. Um, and there was a few others in there that were kind of similar where it's just like like where Roy's with Tyrell and um, there's a lot of like scenes that are shot kind of like from far away that were very close and intimate when they were shot in the film. And I feel like some of their power has been kind of taken away by having them very like, um, like pulled out essentially. <clears throat> but as a positive criticism, there is a, a line right at the end where um, it's Gaff who says, "It's a shame she won't last forever." But then again, no one does. And in the film, it's it's a shame she won't last. But then again, who does? Hmm. And so, despite the fact that it basically says the same thing, for whatever reason, I just kind of prefer the way it's worded in the comic. Because I just feel like it's, I don't know. I just, I think that it's, it just says the same thing, but a little better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, those are a few little, little things. Little things. Little things. But okay, let's, um, let's move on. Yeah. So uh, we'll start with Curtis's response. He said, okay, so I sat down and watched Blade Runner for the first time. I'm a big sci-fi and 80s movie fan, but for whatever reason, I never got around to watching this one until now. There's a lot to love in this movie, for sure. The production design, the concepts, Harrison Ford. I loved the first half thoroughly. 
However, I felt that it really slowed down once the investigation and character development was over, and the movie just became a big Roadrunner and Coyote chase. I think this would have been fine in the 80s, but we've been conditioned these days to expect some sort of twist or big revelation at the end, and this movie didn't deliver. The comic adaptation, on the other hand, is really great. I thought that it would be really rushed, since it is only two issues, but the movie is quite slow, so two issues actually fit quite nicely. The art by Al Williamson and Carlos Garzon is perfect. Williamson is a favorite of mine, and his noir take on this dystopian future works so well. And he had experience drawing Harrison Ford because he drew the Star Wars newspaper strip a few years earlier. Well, there you go. That's why he uh, he captured <laughs> his likeness. He's, he's got Harrison Ford right down. The best part of this adaptation is that the whole thing is told as a story being told by Deckard. Some unimportant scenes are cut out and replaced by Deckard's narration, and it works. It gives the whole thing a noir crime feel. The coloring is the same in both the Marvel Super Special 22 version and the regular newsstand version, but the look of the bleeding ink on cheap newsprint makes it feel even more noir than the glossy stock used for the special, uh, the Super Special, though I really love the Jim Steranko cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of see what you mean about how it uh, it does kind of... It, it, it kind of progresses very linear, like very in a very linear fashion. Um in the end, there is no big, like, twist. I think mm-hmm. um, it, it, this movie kind of um, rewards me every time I watch it, though, because it it has, again, well, as we've discussed, it has a lot to say about some very relevant social issues. And, um, and I don't know, I just feel like it, I, I, I catch something a little bit every time. It is definitely a movie that I think... It, merits more than one viewing and uh and i get it gets better as you go i could see why you might be underwhelmed first time around um but uh, it's the more you think about it there's i think the more you see there's more under the layers of what's just going on on a very on a plot point um level Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um I understand that there's a lot of people who actually just have a hard time seeing through the movie, and I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will never claim that everybody has to love this movie. No. Uh, it's. Um, I don't think any that any movie is for anyone. Or, no, <laughs> sorry, I don't think any movie is for everyone. A- everyone. Uh, sometimes it's just because of where they're at in life when they're watching it, or whatever the case may be. Uh, some people just don't have the relationship with a movie that you have. And it and it requires patience. Uh, the movie does require some patience because yes. it does get it does get a bit slow at it, times, it and is slow. it does require active watching as well. Mm-hmm. I, I will admit that you can't just kind of like get up and make yourself a coffee while you're watching it, or or uh, yeah, anything like that. So, and you know, like Doug said, it's it's not exactly like a, a popcorn flick. It's um, it's it's the sort of thing that's that it's a conversation starter. Like mm-hmm. like we said, and if you don't like it, I mean, you know, that's that's okay. I get it. Yeah. It's it is dated in some capacities, but it, if only because so many works took inspiration from it. You yes. Know? yes uh, again, Altered Carbon. Have you seen Altered Carbon? No, I haven't. I'm reading the book right now because uh, I really enjoyed the first season, and I'm uh, getting my wife to watch the first season. I wanted to rewatch it. Uh, I mean, they could practically take place in the same universe, <laughs> really. Oh, yeah. Uh, minus the replicants. Uh, and uh, and it's not it's not derivative because it's it just works based on based on the way the society has developed and stuff. It just it made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, let's uh, get some more more feedback. Uh, Josh Morrow says, <clears throat> "I have a bit of a strange history with Blade Runner. I watched it." F- for a science fiction class when I was an undergrad and I liked it well enough. But recently I watched Blade Runner 2049. It completely blew me away on nearly every level. 
I got so into it that I went back and rewatched Blade Runner and fell in love with it too. So I've been going deep into the world of the of the movies and patiently or not so patiently waiting for the upcoming anime and the new comic series. I haven't read the adaptation, but considering how Blade Runner is one of my newer obsessions, I'm definitely interested in checking it out in the near future. You know, uh, that, it would be interesting to see this anime because I've always felt like the Blade Runner universe, mm. especially since so much happens that that you don't see, all, like about the, you know stuff like that, what Roy Batty saw. Yeah, um, that, we haven't seen any of the off-world colonies. Yeah, stuff. we have yeah. no idea what's going on. Um, yeah, this is just like this, this sort of sliver of this universe that seems very well developed in somebody's mind. Did you um, see the uh, the shorts that were connected to Blade Runner twenty forty nine? No, I don't think I did. Oh, okay, because one of them is animated, uh, and that was the, what caused that great blackout. Um, one of them, uh, one of them also dealt with uh, uh, Batista's character and the lead up to him being ratted out. Um, oh, yeah, okay. no, there's there's a few, and they're pretty good. Cool. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be interested. Guest in directors. Um, I remember. I love like alternate content stuff, like yeah. like well, as we mentioned, the animatrix and and uh, stuff like that. Like it's there was just... one for Chronicles of Riddick. They had um, mm-hmm. Dark yeah. Fury. Yeah. I think it was yeah, called. I like that too. Actually, yeah. Uh, actually, I may have liked that better than the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Chris Marshall says it's a good two-issue comic, but it really rushes the story. I think the novel adaptation of Do Android's Dream of Electric of Electric Sheep from Boom 2015 is better. Hmm, interesting. The novel adaptation of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep hmm. from Boom. I'm curious about that because, like I said, I've read the book. Um, so I'm curious about that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of looking that up. I'm thinking of looking that up. All right, Paul David H J. I think that's how you'd say it. Yeah, okay. I remember growing up in the 80s. Um, I remember growing up in the 80s. Marvel would periodically bring out these Marvel super special adaptations of movies out when I was a kid. They would be in deluxe format or in limited series form and would usually predate the movie by several weeks. The small convenience store kid, sorry, the small convenience store close to where I lived as a kid would carry these from time to time. In the time before internet, they were good marketing tools to get kids to beg their parents to take them to see the movie. As a kid, I remember being absolutely blown away when I when I opened the book and saw the Al Williamson and Carlos Garzon Garzon art. Um, it was a f- and was a faithful adaptation of the film. The only other movie special that beats it would be uh, Dune with the tremendous Bill Sinkovich art. What an interesting idea! What an interesting idea! What do you think about doing Dune then? Um, I mean, could do, yeah. Yeah, truthfully, I have uh, uh, I have never watched uh, Dune start to finish. The uh, the eighties film. Yeah, the um, oh my god, David Lynch movie. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I have seen that actually. I know, I know you have. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Oh, well, that's all the feedback. Yeah, hold on. Let me just see. Um, yeah, so Marvel Comics and Berkeley published Dune, the official comic book. Uh, and it was an adaptation of David Lynch's Dune. It was Marvel Super Special number 36. So, uh, yeah, do you want to see if we can track that down? Ralph, right. Ralph Macchio was the writer, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, again, Bill Sinkovich was was the artist. Um, hmm. All right, I'm game if you're game. Yeah, I, this would be an opportunity to actually sit down and watch Dune. If at the very least, say, I saw uh, the documentary Hodorowsky's Dune. Does that count for anything? 
it's not the same thing at all. I, I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Does it, but it doesn't mean it's not worth seeing. <clears throat> In fact, it's one of those kind of sad stories. Like, oh, man, this would have been really cool to see. Yeah. Um, um, so, folks, you can find uh, Doug and I through various means if you enjoy the pleasing dulcet tones of our voice. Uh, the Music A to Z podcast I have had to relaunch, and uh, I am uploading at a furious pace. I just uploaded episode, re- sorry, re-uploaded episode 30, uh, trying to trying to catch up. Basically, the format of the show is it's the alphabet. Hey, every episode is the next sequential letter in the alphabet, and we cover a band, artist, or act related to that that letter um i'm now in the second run of our alphabet which at the time this was 2014 2015 uh was our canadian run so now's a great time to hop on board if you're interested in hearing some canadian music that isn't nickelback or justin bieber yeah you know yeah we 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 actually dug out some really great canadian acts uh Mm -hmm. that we hadn't heard of before and other ones that we had and just uh, yeah, we're, it, was, uh, it was a good time, actually. I, I really liked that run. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. it was good. And uh, Doug and I both have our, our own other projects as well and our websites. Uh, you can find my stuff linked at stephengcferguson.ca. Uh, go to YouTube. Check out moving underscore pictures. That's uh, uh, pictures with a K instead of a C. Um, and we are, yeah, we're, we're uh, uploading movie reviews and... Um, we uh, talk about Beast Wars, a, a phenomenal kids show from the 90s. And we're almost actually done Beast Wars Wednesday. Uh, so if, you, if you're like, that sounds like my jam, don't worry. Like, you, we're almost done the show. So you can, you know, you can just catch up all on it right now. Um, just, just catch up. Just, just catch up. Just catch yeah. up. Yeah. And, then, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great time. It's, uh, I'm pouring my heart and soul into it, guys. We're almost at a milestone of a thousand subscribers oh, which I know I know is uh, if people are like that's it but for, you know what you gotta start somewhere and we're super proud of it so far so mm-hmm. be sure check it out yeah well I guess that's uh, that's it for this episode of the epic Marvel movie podcast and we'll see you next week <laughs>